Today's scripture reading. Hello. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 141. Listen now to the word of the Lord. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Let me, leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have led, laid for me, and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. This is the word of the Lord. Just kidding. Good morning. Welcome. Um, we are in the middle of a series of sermons uh, entitled Sacred Pathways, based on a book by Gary Thomas. Uh, we'll be going over these uh, different ways of thinking about how to worship and how to love God. And so we started last week, uh, these Sacred Pathways. Uh, in an email exchange recently, someone uh, misspelled sacred as scared pathways. So I just want you to, don't be scared. These, you know, I know they're new, they might not be as familiar, but uh, there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, let's pray together. God, we thank you for uh, your word. You thank you for making us uh, as we are. And that you have given us uh, these different pathways, different ways of understanding, different ways of experiencing uh, who you are and your goodness. So we ask now, God, that in the hearing of your word, uh, as we bear witness to your word. Help us to be open to all that your spirit would teach us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week I mentioned that I would be going to Buffalo to visit my parents and that I would try to visit the First Presbyterian Church of Lockport where uh, Pastor Malpy Babcock uh, got the inspiration uh, for the hymn, This Is My Father's World. Well, so I did go to Buffalo, and uh, I asked my father, um, you know, have you ever been to the First Presbyterian Church of Buffalo, uh, Lockport? And my dad said no. And then so, you know, I thought, okay, this is, you should know something. My dad and I, we'd like to always try to, like, um, know something that the other person doesn't know, right? So I'm like, all right, this is good. So, well, you know, I wanted to visit there because there's this hymn, and then he stops me right there and says, oh, you mean number 78. You know that pastor there that used to be the pastor there, uh, I think Babcock was his name, you know, he wrote the hymn, This Is My Father's World. And then afterwards, I think he went to pastor a church near Johns Hopkins, and then he went to New York to that famous church, um, I forgot the name of it, and then he became a missionary, and then 
And then I think he died after being a missionary uh, in Italy, I think it was. And I think he was 48 years old. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I can't put anything on him. And then, of course, I did think, no, he didn't die at 48, he died at 43. Uh, but <laughs> I didn't say that out loud. So, um, and then he starts telling me all about some of the other hymns and their origin stories and so on. So um, th that's my life. That's my life. Anyway, so uh, to no one's surprise, to no one's surprise, no one in my family wanted to go visit the church with me. So I went alone. Um, but I did actually have a nice conversation with the pastor there, uh, with their music director as well. And I learned more about Pastor Malpy Babcock, got some nice brochures. Um, and then the uh, music director had said, you know, where uh, Pastor Babcock used to go, there's this hill in, the, in town where he used to, you know, sit and uh, he'd look over Lake Ontario, and on a clear day, you could see Toronto on the other side. And so he says, you know, if you go out that way, and he's giving me all these directions, and I'm thinking, I'm not going there. <laughs> it's freezing outside, and like, I, I, you know, it's, it's an unmarked hill in, in this town that I, you know, haven't really been to before. So uh, instead, I decided, you know what, instead of going to try to find this hill, because it was a cloudy miserable cold day. I'm not going to see anything anyway. So instead I thought, well, I'll go to Niagara Falls instead. Um, it's one of the great natural wonders of the world, right? It's just, you know, 10, 15 minute drive from where my parents live. And so uh, none of my kids wanted to go, but my wife said she'll come with me. So we went. Uh, I thought it was going to be a romantic date, you know, the honeymoon capital of the world, Niagara Falls, right? Um, it was terrible. <laughs> it was just really, really terrible. Uh, it was freezing, the, the mist coming off the falls was like just like pelting your face with like this bitter cold. Um, and you know, there was like nobody there. Normally the falls is like wall-to-wall -wall people. That morning, like, there was one other guy. There were like three people in the entire falls. And we were thinking maybe it was because the government shut down, it's a national park, so you know, they closed the park. But no one was there because it was freezing, right? I mean, it's like, who, who goes there? Um, and so um, my wife was like, you know, uh, should we sing, this is my father's word? No. <laughs> you know, uh, it's too cold. Um, we did listen to the, uh, the river as it made its way to the falls, and, and that was kind of cool, just hearing all the rumbling of, of, the, of the river. Um, but we didn't spend a lot of time there. We took a quick look, took a quick selfie that I know many of you saw already. Um, and then um, she and I, walk very quickly back to the souvenir shop where it was warm. That's my experience with being a naturalist. I thank God for heated buildings. That's what being a naturalist taught me uh, this week. And, and it occurred to me that I probably should have suggested we do some of these naturalist exercises uh, in the spring uh, when it's warmer and you might actually want to take a walk outside. Uh, what, this, this leads me to uh, two concerns uh, that you might have about this sermon series and about me. Uh, one is that even though we're talking about these different pathways, it should be clear that the idea of categorizing pathways um, is something only someone on the intellectual pathway would do, right? The naturalist isn't thinking about categorizing or dividing these pathways in these uh, sorts of ways. And so we're kind of looking at the pathways, but we're sort of all looking through this one lens of the intellectual pathway. So there's a kind of uh, bias built right in, um, which, is, which is okay, because um, we, we're 
even though we're just kind of thinking about it, we have the opportunity throughout the week then to at least to try to uh, experience it. Um, and these are not absolute categories or anything like that. So again, I think it's okay for us to think about them primarily uh, as a guide uh, for our journey. But the other concern that you may have, and I, I did too, frankly, is that you're being guided by someone uh, in this series, uh, by someone who doesn't really walk or experience some of these other pathways, right? Uh, as you just heard, I'm not much of a naturalist. Today, I'm going to talk about the senses and experiencing God with our senses. And, you know, uh, you, some of you know that my, my senses are not particularly sharp. Um, in fact, uh, last week, um, I disappointed, uh, shocked, and offended a, a few people. And so this may also uh, disappoint, shock, and offend some of you, but, you know, I'm, I, sh I should come clean. Um, you know, over the years, I I've told you, uh, many of you, that I like coffee, that I drink coffee, and most of you have probably seen me drinking coffee in, in the fellowship uh, time at, at some point. Uh, I say that I like coffee, um, but I tell you that ordinarily I use a Keurig machine in the morning for my coffee. And sometimes I use one of those uh, instant Nescafe coffees uh, for my morning coffee. And some of you uh, are judging me because that's not real coffee, you're thinking, right? So I know you're very disappointed that that's what I drink and that's what I'm calling coffee. Um, it gets worse. Sometimes, because I drink my coffee very slowly, it gets cold. And so when I've only drunk about half of it, I'll put the rest in the microwave to reheat it. I know, some of you are shocked right now. It gets even worse. So after I've reheated it, I still drink it too slow. And so when it gets cold again, I will just add some hot water to it and drink this dismally diluted coffee-flavored water because I, I just want something kind of warm to drink when I'm working, I know. Some of you are so disgusted with me right now. Um, some of you just want to walk out here and not listen to this uncivilized barbarian, uh, but just, just stay seated, please. So hearing this confession, uh, you might be doubtful today as I preach about the senses, and especially the senses of taste and smell as part of our worshiping and loving God. Uh, but I want to assure you, reassure you, that I can still be a faithful guide. Uh, I know someone, for example, who is a terrific cook and baker, but who absolutely hates food uh, with cream in it. I mean, I love cream, but when I see a, a, a cream puff, you know, I don't need the puff. I just want the cream. Like, you can just squirt cream in my mouth, and that, that'd be good. And so it's hard for me to understand, how can you not like cream? Um, and so when she, or he, makes desserts with cream in it, you know, at first I'm thinking, like, can this be any good? Like, this person doesn't really like cream. But, you know, everything else that this person makes is good, so you, so you taste it, and it actually is, is very good. Um, and this person can actually make very good desserts uh, involving cream. And that's kind of what I'm shooting for in the sermon series here today. I may not have experienced some of these paths or enjoy them to their fullest, but I hope to present them in at least a way that you can uh, appreciate them somewhat and to encourage you uh, to explore them uh, on your own. All right? So that's what I'm uh, aiming for. Uh, today, I want to talk about the sensates, what Gary Thomas calls sensates. Uh, this should not be confused with the Netflix TV series, 
sensate, uh, although they do have the kind of commonality of this idea of sharing senses and stuff. Uh, but the sensates are people who want to worship God, who want to love God with all of their senses. They want to be surrounded and to be filled with the majesty, the beauty, the splendor of God. So they're drawn to these highly liturgical, majestic, grand worship services filled with sights and sounds and smells that practically overwhelm them. They want incense and smoke, intricate and soaring architecture, stained glass windows, thunderous organ music, ritual language, colorful robes, banners, and pageantry. They want sensory overload. We Presbyterians, not so much. Most of us would find the smell of incense and the, uh, the sight of smoke a distraction rather than an aid in the worship of God. The only sense that we typically engage in during our worship is the hearing. We want to hear God's words, and many of us actually equate silence and plainness with reverence and worship. But today in the psalm, as you heard, uh, we have an illustration of someone uh, who could be a sensate where all the senses are involved in their prayer. The psalm is a prayer for protection and for help, but you can see the language of this prayer touches on all the senses. First, you notice smell is involved. The psalmist begins by asking that his prayers be counted as incense, that it be counted as incense. Um, and so even though we prefer our church not to smell at all, uh, smells you know, are, are very powerful triggers of memories. Um, smells linger, right, on our clothes. If you ever go to a, a Korean barbecue restaurant, you know, all your clothes, your hair, like you smell like Korean barbecue all day, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? But that's, that smell just lingers. And, and smells linger in our memories as well. I can remember um, the first time I went back to Korea after like, I don't know how many years, and I uh, got off the uh, train somewhere and I smell this thing that I immediately recognized as I remember this smell and like these childhood memories came back. I didn't know what it was, but the smell just was so distinctive and it just triggered all these memories. And I discovered later that it was the, the smell of fried silkworm larvae, right? <laughs> but that smell, like I never forgot it. I didn't even know that I remembered it. But it just, you know, it was, it was that, uh, that memorable. Uh, it, it lingers, it lingers. People wear deodorants and clones. We, we choose flowers and soap, shampoos, toothpaste uh, for their smells. We have certain smells in our memory, certain foods, certain perfumes that, that will trigger and remind us of people uh, in our lives, perhaps people we love. If you go to Eastern Orthodox churches and some other uh, denominations, they continue to use incense, the, the smells, as an aid to worship. And so if you grow up with that, whenever you smell that, you know, it will trigger these memories of being in worship and, and worshiping God. You know, and that's one of the reasons that incense has been a part of worship services from the very, very beginning. In Exodus 30 in the Old Testament, for example, God tells Moses to build an altar on which to burn incense. He gives very specific instructions about how this altar is to be built. And God says, and Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning. Every morning, when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, 
he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. I mean, they're supposed to have this incense burning in the temple, in the tabernacle, every day, morning and night. It's this constant smell of this burning incense. That's what the Israelites were instructed to do. Malachi 1.11, God says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. We all know that part of it, right? But then the second part of that verse is, and in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Those are, that's, that's part of the verse we don't memorize ordinarily. So this is supposed to be a part of our regular worship. Along with the gifts of gold, you remember, the Magi brought gifts of frankincense, frankincense and myrrh, both very uh, aromatic items. And in the Gospel of Luke, remember John the Baptizer's father, Zechariah, he, he was chosen by lottery to enter the temple. Do you remember to do what? It was to burn incense. Luke 1, 10 says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. You know, I... I didn't realize that there was an altar of incense really until this week. I mean, I've read that passage I don't know how many times, but I always thought and imagined in my head, he's there by the altar to, to sacrifice. I completely ignored the fact that it was there to burn incense because, you know, um, I don't think about it that much. I, I don't, I never use incense when I pray. And so I didn't even notice those words, but that's what he was doing. In Revelation 5, there's a vision of 24 elders holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the psalmist prayers here are, in fact, counted as incense. It's, it is a metaphor, but it's not just a metaphor. So, you know, maybe some of you want to explore praying with incense uh, this week. Um, well, along with smell, of course, is, is taste. In verse 4, the psalmist asks for a guard over his mouth that he not taste the delicacies, that he not eat the delicacies of those who work iniquity. Uh, and again, to taste and to eat, uh, it's, it's this, uh, again, a metaphor for experiencing or knowing God in, in a deeper way. And so he, he doesn't want to taste the delicacies of those who work in iniquity because he doesn't want to participate, he doesn't want to share in their uh, fellowship. Another Psalm 34 declares, oh, taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my taste. And at least two men in the Bible were told to eat the scriptures, to literally eat the word. Um, and so, you know, even tasting is a part of our worship service. As you know, every Sunday, uh, you know, we gather uh, to hear the word, but we also gather around the communion table to eat the bread and to drink the wine. Uh, these are concrete, these are very concrete reminders of the goodness of God that we get to taste in a very literal way the goodness of God and of what Christ has done for us. Um, you know, in fact, I think the, the communion table is really the, the best place for experiencing the senses as a sensate, right? Because you can see that the color of, of, of the wine you can taste, you can smell the wine and, and the bread. Uh, you, can touch, you can touch the bread, you can get the feel of that. And you can even hear the crunching 
uh, of the wafers when you eat. In fact, I was told you know, some kids were playing church at home. Kids actually do that. Um, and as part of their playing church, they were pretending to do communion. And they said, you got to make the crunchy sound. When, you know, because th that's what they remember. They, they know that. They know that. They, they hear the, the crunching, the shattering as of, of breaking bones of, of broken body. Um, some of you may remember the first time you had communion. You know, I'm really actually very glad uh, for our confirmation students because for many of them, the first time that they have communion, it's, all the, it's also the first time uh, that many of them get to taste wine um, because you know, typically those Sundays we have more people and so by the time the, the tray comes to the front, we've run out of juice and so they're kind of forced to take a wine. And you may remember seeing some of their faces, right? I mean, they're like, you know, they're just like, they're not really happy about it. Um, but I love watching that. I love, I do, it's, I love that. I love, 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 love that. Um, because I know they're gonna remember that for the rest of their lives, right? Maybe in the years to come, whenever they taste wine or, or grape juice, uh, it, it'll trigger that memory of the time when they made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ in front of everybody. Maybe they'll remember that, right? That taste, that smell, because it was so, you know, memorable. I, I do. Uh, with each taste, they'll be reminded of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Uh, all of God's goodness in providing food and water and drinks for our enjoyment. Um, that's why I've been asking the bakers of our church to, to bake bread for our communion service. Um, I, I thought, you know, how good it would be if, especially our young people, if they grow up associating the smell of fresh baked bread and the smell and taste of good wine with church. Like when they think of church, the memory isn't like, oh, these boring sermons, right? But what they remember is like, oh yeah, the, oh, the bread was so good at church and, and the wine was so delicious, right? If that's what they get out of it. And the music, they remember the music or you know, other things. Um, so, so, so I hope we can, we can do that. Uh, so again, that's my uh, encouragement for you bakers to, to bake more bread. Um, next uh, is touch. Uh, the psalmist writes, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. You know, it's really interesting because he's being open here to, to rebuke, to being slapped, to loving reproof from the community. Even though, you know, that this is not a, you know, a gentle, like, hug, touch, uh, and it feels painful, frankly, um, it is an experience that is a good experience to him. He says, it's like oil being poured on my head. Again, that's not a good image for us, but that, that, that was, that's a good thing to have oil as a sign of anointing. And he says, it's, it's good. It's, it's good fellowship. The, the loving reproof, the loving rebuke of my brothers and sisters in community. Like, I want that. I want that kind of engagement that kind of intimacy. A genuine fellowship is better than eating you know, these delicious delicacies with those who work iniquity. Proverbs 27, six reminds us, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. You know, so all of the senses, by the way, you know, they, but especially this sense of touch, I think, it, again, is a reminder of community. That the, even though we're sort of uh, experiencing everything through our senses, it is a reminder that is a shared experience uh, in community. 
And then he goes on to say he wants also the lifting up of his hands as the evening sacrifice. Just as the, the smoke rising from the incense, right, is, is a sign of prayer. He wants people to lift up their hands um, like the evening sacrifice as a position of prayer. I know that, again, as Presbyterians, uh, we prefer to sit quietly uh, in our comfortable seats to pray in our minds, not even out loud, um, maybe folding our hands, uh, something like that typically. But the ancient catacombs uh, and the scriptures suggest that the modern Pentecostals uh, have it right and not us. The early depictions of Christians in worship, uh, in prayer, is with their hands raised. And we see this in the scriptures, that this is the normal position of prayer. Not, not this, it's this. This is the normal body position of prayer. Psalm 28 the psalmist writes, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. First Kings, King Solomon in the dedication of the temple, it says, He stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and prayed. Even the Apostle Paul told Timothy, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Lifting hands is the normal, ordinary, and common practice of prayer and worship and loving God, and, and we ought to do that too. I know that during uh, our praise time, uh, very few of you uh, lift your hands, uh, you know, during the time of, of, of praise. A few of you have uh, shared with me over the years that uh, you might do that uh, if it were darker, if this was a night service, if the band, you know, got the full band and it's really rocking and, you know, and I'm in the back, then maybe I'll, you know, lift up my hands or something like that. Um, if, if you want it darker, just close your eyes. That, that's my, you know, you, you might think 11 a.m. is too early to be, you know, just doing this, but, but it's not. It's not. Let your whole body worship God. Sing as loud as you can. Lift your hands and clap. You know, I clap out of tune, out of beat. I'm, I don't know if that bothers our drummer, but um, I, I just, you know, don't let your self-consciousness and embarrassment of what people are going to, you know, think about you or anything like that. Like, don't let that keep you from experiencing the fullness of worshiping God. I mean, you know, you're, don't do that. If, it, if you're too embarrassed to do it, practice at home. When no one's looking, just, um, just lift your hands, right? Just, you know, which way do they go? I don't know. Just, just lift them up. Just, Okay. <laughs> Um, instead of kneeling uh, in prayer this week, try standing up and lift your hands and see what that feels like. Another thing that I would suggest for you uh, in prayer, uh, in talking about touch and uh, the sense of touch, uh, to hold some small item in your hands as you pray uh, this week. Uh, someone suggested like you might want to hold a paper clip in your hand uh, if you're praying for the healing of a relationship, right, that you want it to, it's falling apart and, and a paper clip maybe remind you of trying to put it back together. Maybe holding a rubber band to, to remind you to be soft in your heart, to be pliable, to be teachable. Uh, maybe a nail uh, to think about the cross uh, in your prayer and so on. Uh, I brought some um, on the communion table. You see that in the front there are some pebbles uh, I got these from the Sea of Galilee when I was in Israel, uh, from the traditional site where Jesus, after the resurrection, ate breakfast um, with his disciples. And so I picked up some of these stones from, from, the, uh, from the lake. And, you know, 
in my imagination, you know, as I walked in the, in the lake, I thought maybe my toes are touching the pebbles that Jesus' toes touch too, right? I was trying to make a, a connection that way. And so I brought them and I invite you today after service, uh, feel free to touch them, feel free to take one. Uh, I realize I don't think I have enough for everybody, but if you wanna take one, please uh, take them. Um, and, and maybe this week, just hold it in your hand and, and think about, uh, you know, just see what that does for you uh, in your prayer this week. And so then the psalmist then goes from touch to, tells us to about hearing again. Uh, he says he, he calls out to God. He assumes that God will hear him and he's listening as well. And then he speaks so that others can hear him as well in verse six. And as I said, hearing is the, is the sense that we most engage in during worship. We hear the music. Uh, we hear scripture being read. Listen now to the word of the Lord or for the word of the Lord. And then you hear the sermon. And then you hear the words of the institution for communion. You hear the announcements, you hear the congregational singing, and then the very last word that you hear, at least from me, the last word that I want you to hear from me is the benediction. That no matter what happened, uh, I want you to leave here with a word of blessing. That that's the last thing that you remember uh, as you walk out of service. Martin Luther said that scripture was meant to be heard more than it was to be read. And that's a pretty amazing thing for him to say because he, much like we've been going through this incredible uh, digital revolution, he was going through an incredible revolution too where people were just beginning to read uh, with the advent of the, the printing press and his books were very, very popular. Um, but, he, but he wanted people to hear the word, to hear the word. And we are the, uh, the children of that theology. Um, and so, Every Sunday, I, I encourage you to listen when the scriptures are being read, not to read, but simply to listen. And then after you listen, then you can open your Bibles and you know, take notes and, and, and whatnot. But, but initially, just, just, to, just to listen to the word of God. Um, and I'm told that you know, when we listen, it actually engages more of our brain than when we're simply reading. And so again, I wanna just remind you to just uh, listen, um, to listen. And I would encourage you uh, to come to church early, um, to sit in here before service begins, um, maybe to listen to the band as they practice, or when they finish, just sit there in, 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 the, in, in quiet and kind of just listen, uh, to hear what you might hear. Um, you know, and especially, again, to come here on time so that you can start singing the praise songs, all of them. All of them. You know, because I know that in the week, well, maybe, maybe the first week it's okay, but next week you're not going to remember anything I've said. I, I, I know that. I know that. But you might remember the, the songs that you sang, and you might hum them, and you might think about God that way. Right? I know that, you know, I've listened to a lot of sermons, but I very rarely uh, walk and think about the sermons. Most of the time, I'm humming a tune, a praise song or something. That's, that's my theology. That's how I'm thinking about God. I'm not, you know, contemplating Paul's argument in Romans 6. I'm probably just sort of reciting Psalm 23, right? And, and so come and sing so that, so that you maybe learn a new song or maybe, maybe that that... that song would just, just stay in your, in your memory and so that during the week you can sing it and remember God and dwell 
on his goodness, right? So we got the smell, we got the taste, we got touch, we got hearing, and last of all, we have uh, seeing. Uh, I understand that perhaps a third of our cerebral cortex is devoted to visual processing. So it's like the biggest sense uh, that, that we have. And um, it's true, right? We're, so much is um, based on what we, what we see. Uh, advertisers know this, and so they, they just attack us uh, with, with images. Um, and I tell you, though, um, when I was visiting that church in Lockport, I did get a really good surprise that I did not expect at all. Um, as I said, I wasn't crazy about the weather or walking outside and enjoying nature, but that church uh, has a beautiful sanctuary with these magnificent Tiffany stained glass windows. You know, and I know my, my family was very sad they didn't get to see that, you know. Um, but I mean, just all around their sanctuary, just these beautiful stained glass, Tiffany stained glass windows, just really very, very uh, ornate, very expensive, uh, rare. Um, you know, these depictions of, of, of angels on the second floor and then all these sort of biblical scenes on, on the first floor. It, it's just really, so I mean, I just sat in the sanctuary and I just like kind of just um, looked at these pictures and just uh, enjoyed um, what they were communicating. And I got to just kind of worship and pray and be thankful uh, for that. Um, you know, God is the creator of beauty. And it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God makes all things beautiful in their time. And so God calls people to, to make things beautiful, to design beautiful buildings, to, to paint uh, beautiful pictures. Um, in the scriptures in Exodus, uh, there's a guy named uh, Bazalel whom, who is filled with the Spirit of God. And God says he was to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft also. And, um, you know, God called him and gifted him with all these artistic abilities so that he can create a tabernacle and the utensils and other things that were going to be used in the worship of God to be, to be beautiful. Now, you know, this is a very kind of a simple design, this, this building, but it has a kind of a simplistic beauty to it too, right? We want to be in space where, you know, um, not only are we not distracted, but we want to be in a place where we might think about God. And if you've been to like these magnificent cathedrals or churches, you know, with these incredible... Uh, paintings on the, on the walls or these high ceilings, like you can look at all of that and, and you can just, your spirits can just soar because you're seeing this incredible uh, monument to beauty, these works of art uh, dedicated uh, to God's glory. Um, I wore a, a colorful, this is my not, this is as outrageous as I get, um, just a little more color than my usual uh, stole just because we're talking about visuals and and things like the uh, census today. Um, you know, in many churches, you'll see decorations during the different seasons, during the Advent season, certain colors, right? And churches will sometimes have banners and, and pageants and all kinds of uh, things that are visually uh, interesting and so on. Um, and I, I know, again, we're, we're not, most of us are not into that, but uh, I, I want to encourage you to um, maybe visit a church this week um, you know, I, I googled beautiful churches in New Jersey, and man, there's some really, really beautiful churches in New Jersey. Um, you know, I, I didn't visit them yet, but I saw the, the pictures online, and so uh, if you can, uh, google it and go, go, go visit one, just to go inside and sit and, and, and praise God um, as you sit there. 
Well, let, let me just close with this thought. Um, as I said, we focus on hearing in our service, and, and that's good. Uh, it is hearing that really is vital. Uh, so much of scripture is about, it calls us to hear, right? That is, that's our fundamental disposition before God, to listen, to listen. The foundational Shema of the Israelites is, hear, O Israel, right? hear, not see, hear, the Lord your God is one. To hear is to obey. And that's supposed to be our basic orientation and disposition toward God, to listen to what God has to say with an attitude of obedience. Um, but in the scriptures, experiences with God involve more than just hearing. It involved all of the senses, right? Moses encountered God in the heat and the sight of a burning bush that did not burn. Elijah got revived through some tasty bread. And then he experienced God in the mountains with the sights, sounds, and smells of fire, of earthquake, the, the, uh, the, the, and he felt the, the power of rock-shattering movement as God moved in the mountains. And then finally he heard the sound of silence in the presence of God. Solomon dedicated the temple and there was fire and smoke, priests blowing trumpets loudly. And you can imagine the, the, the smell of thousands of animals being burnt as uh, sacrifice. Ezekiel's encounters with God involved uh, the sound of rushing waters, feeling the wind and rumblings, and flashes of lightning, a throne of sapphire with blinding light. John had a similar experience in the book of Revelation. And the disciples and the servants at the wedding in Cana saw Christ's glory in the tasting of the delicious wine. Even the Apostle Paul, when he met Christ on the road, it was accompanied by this blinding light. So it's, so it's not just a mental exercise and hearing. There's, there's more than that. And all of this is simply to say that we are embodied creatures. We are embodied creatures. We are not just minds that are somehow housed in these sort of temporary uh, bodies. Greek philosophers and others have sometimes you know, treated the body as essentially evil or weak, that it is something to be overcome and to uh, escape from. But we, we say no to that. That is not the way we understand our body and our senses. We proclaim the resurrection of the body. Not just the soul or spirit and, you know, like ghost-like wisps, the resurrection of the body. The body is a part of the way we were created by God. It is not something to be ashamed of. It is not something to be escaped from, that you know, somehow your, your mind can uh, love God, but your body uh, is somehow removed from that. The very scandal of the gospel is that God himself took on flesh. God died bodily to redeem both body and spirit. The writer Van Ogden Vogt wrote, truth must be embodied to be realized. It must be incorporated to be understood. An image, a rite, a creed, a feeling, a feast, a vision, or a sacrament has always been used to embody its truth. Truth has to be embodied, right? Think about the way you love anyone. Can, you, know, you never love someone just sort of in the abstract in your mind only, right? Parents? You don't love your children just in thought. I mean, I know sometimes you kind of just want to love them in thought only and just kind of, you know, get away from them uh, sometimes when they're having a meltdown or something like that. But you can't just love them in the abstract. Like, you can't 
Can you imagine loving a child and never, you know, holding their hand or hugging them or kissing them or just without that and hearing their voices and like, you can't, you can't love without engaging all of your senses. When you fall in love, it's the same thing. Like you can't love someone and just think, well, you know, have a kind of a philosophical attachment to someone in your mind only. No, it's this, this is right. It's this, all this passion and desire and, you know, just like longing to be with, with someone. That's the way we understand how it is to love, how to, be, how to connect with people. And God calls us, God designed us that way. God calls us to engage all of our senses in the way we worship and love him. In the Old Testament, in fact, God is often uh, anthropomorphized as one who, you know, God, God smells the aroma of the sacrifices, we are told. God hears, God sees the plight of his people. God is described as a mighty warrior who goes into battle and is described also with the gentleness of a mother. Right? God somehow experiences the senses in the same way that we do. And the sacred pathway of the sensate reminds us that God and loving God, uh, loving God is not simply agreeing in our minds only to a set of propositional truths about God. Faith is not merely saying, I believe God in my head. God is not just some philosophical idea to be debated. God is embodied, became incarnate in the flesh in Christ. God certainly did not love us in simply in thought. We are to know God in the deepest possible way, to love God, not just with our minds, but the scriptures teach us we are to God, love God with our entire being, with mind, body, soul, spirit, strength, with all that we have. With every part of who we are, we are to love God. And in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ, Jesus became God. Jesus became incarnated. God became a human being. I mean, it's just, it makes no sense, right? That makes no sense. But in Jesus, God experienced all the senses as we do. Jesus smelled the bread. He tasted the wine. He touched the lepers. He saw the suffering and he heard the crying of the infants in the same way that we do. So he knows what we know. He experienced what we experienced with our senses because he had those very same senses even as we do. So um, I want to just encourage you this week. Look at beautiful paintings. Uh, light some incense and powerful hymns. Listen to them. Touch the stones from the lake. Taste old wine and eat fresh bread. And let, let it all point, let them all point you toward the beauty and the majesty of God and be thankful. Now, I, I should just give you at least a little warning here. I don't want to suggest that all these things that we experience with our senses um, should be worshipped in any way, right? The golden calf, as beautiful as it was, it is not to be worshipped. So the, so the sacred pathways, these experiences now with the senses, they're a guide, they're a pathway. They themselves are not the thing. Don't let, you know, uh, don't worship the worship experience. We're to worship God. We're to worship God. As the psalmist says here, verse eight, but my eyes are toward you, O God. My eyes are toward you. So again, this is not a literal looking at God, but again, it's this disposition of looking to God. My eyes might look at these powerful, uh, you know, images and pictures, but my eyes, my disposition is looking at God beyond the painting.
my overall orientation is toward God, not toward the experiences of my, my experiences with God. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising this shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Let your senses lead you this week uh, toward Jesus. Use, use the gifts of your senses to worship God and, and experience God more fully. Uh, let's pray together. God, we, uh, we're thankful for the way you have uh, made us. We're thankful that um, we can see, we can hear, we can touch, smell, taste, that we, we have bodies uh, to experience with all of our senses your goodness. And so help us, God, um, to know what that means in a deeper way, to love you with all our being, to love you more fully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.